Pastor Rich isn't here today. Um, he's in California visiting his family. I don't know if that's a pleasure trip or if there's a need or whatever, but uh, we could keep him in our prayers all, all the same. Okay, and um, this week, because I get to pick the topic, I thought we'd talk about for- forgiveness, because I think it's such a powerful thing in our lives, whether we're the forgiver or the one being for- for- forgiven, uh, it's incredibly powerful. And I'm going to go through a whole bunch of things that show us that power and how it affects us both ways, whether we're giving or, re- or receiving. It's, 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 a, um, it's a big influence in our life. And of course, you can probably guess where I'm headed. And that's, of course, we have the uh, apex or the uh, epiphany of forgiveness, which is Jesus and our sal- salvation. So before I get into that, um, just wanted to wish everybody a good week. And I think everybody had a good week. No? Decent? Right? And I, always, um, I always get confused on that because I never know if Sunday is the end of the week or the beginning of the week. Because uh, if, you, if you think about it, everybody thinks of the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and um, you know, the Bible says seventh day God rested. So we got all these examples and all these things. But when we look at the calendar, Sunday is the first day of the week. And if we think of other cultures, uh, Judaism practices the Sabbath on Saturday. It goes from sunset Friday to a starry night of Saturday. So it's basically the whole day of Saturday. So really their Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. So Sunday is the beginning of the week for people who practice Judaism. So I always get really confused on this. And, And our calendar is based on the Julian calendar. And I, I'm just throwing some fun fact because that's how I, I like little fun little tidbits of information. So um, the Julian calendar, right, is named after Julius Caesar, right? It was adopted about 45 BC, and that pretty much had a Sunday beginning date. Um, and you can tell it's a Roman-based calendar because they named the months after themselves. They named some of the months after their gods. They named some of the month after some of the Caesars, so Julius gives us July, and Augustus gives us August, because he was the first emperor of Rome, so he gets his own month. Um, so a lot of people may not realize. And then, of course, other people came along, like Charlemagne and the Ottomans, and they named their own months after themselves. So like Jim likes to say, it's almost like uh, the people in in uh, in in, 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 in in Hollywood, right, they like to celebrate themselves and name things after themselves and give themselves celebrations and holidays. And then Pope Gregory comes along, and he wasn't necessarily trying to name anything after himself, but there was a problem because Easter was drifting around. I don't know if you know this, but Easter was drifting around, and the Pope was getting concerned. So in the late 1500s, Pope Gregory and his, all his council and all this figures out that the calendar is two one hundredth of a percent too long, that the, too many days in the year. So it doesn't sound like much. It actually equates to about three days every 400 years. All right? So, you know, in a short time frame, we probably wouldn't notice. In a very long time period, we can get pretty far off. And what Pope Gregory had said was, 
you know, in the 1400 years since Julius Caesar, in the late 1500s, the calendar was 10 days too long, and Easter kept pushing deeper and deeper into April. So, being popish, decided they wanted to bring that back, so, poof, they erased 10 days out of the calendar. All right, that's that mysterious, you may have heard of this sometime, mysterious 10 days disappearing out of the calendar. Um, so, and I don't know if you even know how Easter begins, or how they pick the date, it's a little unique. There was a lot of debate about how, where Easter should be, and there was a lunar calendar and a solar calendar, and they couldn't decide what to do. So what they did was they compromised, and they said, okay, we'll use the spring equinox, which is basically March 21st, and it's gonna be the first full moon for the people, the lunar people, the first full moon after March 21st. And that's why it moves around. Sometimes it's, you know, pretty far into March. Sometimes it seems like it's mid-March. Sometimes it seems like it's deep into April. We're waiting for that full moon to come up. It's the first Sunday after that. All right, so that's how Easter's done. That's how Pope Gregory got us back on track. Um, I don't know, you may even know this or not, but leap years, we get leap years every four years, but they skip one every 400 years because there's only three days too long out of every 400 years. So we get leap years, except that 400th year, we give it a skip. Um, so most people don't realize them because who lives 400 years? <laughs> so, so where I'm really going with all this is the Bible makes pretty clear there should be a day of rest, a seventh day, a Sabbath. And nothing new. I and mean, we go all the way back to Genesis 2.2, 2, and you don't, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. Is, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on that seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed that seventh day and made it holy. And that's the key to Sabbath is holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating what he had done. So that's pretty clear. And again, early on in the Bible, then God comes along and he reinforces it later on. This is, remember now, this is pre-Ten Commandments or any of that stuff. So God comes along a little later and reinforces it. When the Israelites had left Egypt, they were wandering in the desert. And if you remember, God was producing manna for them so they could have something to eat. And he instructed them that on the sixth day, they should collect two days of manna. So that on the seventh day, no one had to venture out and gather manna or do anything to feed themselves, i.e., keep the Sabbath holy. So even, again, going right along, God keeps reinforcing this. And then lo and behold, the Ten Commandments come along, right? Moses gets his Ten Commandments, and... It says, the fourth commandment, you know, honor the, the, the Sabbath. So, if I read you some from Exodus 20, this is again where the, the, the Israelites are out in the desert. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That's a theme we've got here. So what does it mean? So God gives us instructions of what, what does keeping it holy mean? And in Exodus 20, verse 9, it says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to, Lord, to the Lord your God. 
and on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male, nor your female servant, nor your animals, nor your, any foreigner residing with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that was in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord has blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So that's our instructions. Again, if we're a little not too sure about the fourth commandment or what gathering the double manner on Saturdays was supposed to mean, or the sixth day, I should say, um, we've got more details on what we should be doing. So why am I belaboring the Sabbath and the seventh day? If you think about it, and again, on my theme of for forgiveness, we, we need that all the time. We can't even keep this commandment. We're not even close. Um, what do we do? We shop on the Sabbath. We eat. We sell things, right? You see yard sales all the time. Oh, let's pull over. All right? We cause other people to work. Let's go grocery shopping. Let's go out to eat. So we're actually, I don't say forcing, we're encouraging other people to work. And so we're really doing a, ho a horrible job keeping the Sabbath. Yeah. Um, so again, my theme of being forgiven, we need just that one commandment. We need it every week. We run into this problem. So <clears throat> it gets worse now with time. We've got technology. Everybody loves now 24-7, right? We like the seven part. We, we can do everything. We can go buy clothes anytime we want. We can go grocery shopping 24 hours. The pharmacy's open 24-7. We love that. We can go online and buy stuff. Again, it just keeps perpetuating. But our faults here are, are falling down. Is nothing new. If, if you want to turn your Bibles, go to Nehemiah chapter 13. And this shows you how far back. So while you're looking that up, again, I'll give you some fun facts. Nehemiah was around 400 BC. Okay? So that's a very long time ago. That was the Babylonian era, okay? Again, nothing new. Um, this isn't stuff that just happened. And if you're at Nehemiah chapter 13, we're going to go to verse 15. Now, Nehemiah was a high official, okay, in that area. It was like a governor, a, a court uh, person, somebody who, you know, uh, given a lot of authority, we'll say. Okay? And Nehemiah says, and again, chapter 13, verse 15, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, all other kinds of loads. They were bringing them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. But the people from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise, selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judea. I rebuked the nobles of Judea and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Again, this is 400 BC. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all of the calamity on us and on the city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Again, we've got to be forgiven all the time. When evening shadows fell on the gates, this is how powerful this temptation is. 
in verse 19, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. So you think about it, he's locking up the city. That's how powerful this attraction is. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside of Jerusalem, waiting at the gates. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night at the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, no longer did merchants come on the Sabbath. And then Nehemiah commanded the Levites to purify themselves and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath holy. So this is my point. That, and again, I'm talking about one, one shortcoming of ours. It's so powerful. That think about it. Nehemiah's um, saying, I'm going to arrest you if you don't do this. I'm going to lock the gates. I just have to put up guards to keep it from happening because people sneak in and do these things. I mean, that's pretty powerful. Now, lucky for us, the power of forgiveness is just as, as powerful as the temptation of, of violating the commandments or any other of God's word. So, the good news on forgiveness is we, get, we do get it all the time. God is very patient. God's loving, keeps us in line. Uh, God will, will come back again and again and again, and even though we keep, keep failing. So at the end of December, I talked about faithfulness of God and how God has to always be ready for us all the time and always be ready for our shortcomings and where we come up short and fail. So and you don't have to turn to these, but I'll just read a couple. It is Psalm 100, the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Forever, past us, past our ancestors, our, our offspring. Um, God just continues. Now, actually, I can make a couple of points. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we get a warning about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. So 10, 12. It says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. And this is, again, this is God knowing how weak we are. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. In other words, you're not the worst person in the world. God knows we're all the same. We're all equal. We all have that common thread. So God even knows that you're temptation. There's no temptation that's unique to you. You're not special. So God says it's common to all of, all of man, all of mankind. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, you will be provided a way out. So God's given us that escape hatch. I'm going to elaborate on that later. And that is so that you can endure the temptation. And that really means either during or after. Because after you, you know, there's another reaction after the temptation. But God, again, gives us a way out. 
So God's faithful to forgive us. That's a, that's a really good thing. And you can see that we are forgiven over and over and over. But that, again, that takes a lot of patience. And that's part of the faithfulness of God. He's patient to keep doing the forgiving over and over and over. And God never gives up, never says, uh, I'm out of ideas, uh, it's too much for me, I, I need a vacation, I'm, I'm tired. It just keeps, God just keeps giving it. And then it's Jesus who embraces the sinner, right? Takes the sin onto himself. I'm going to talk more about that too. All we have to do is ask. It's that simple. We just ask for that forgiveness. Jesus even defends us, right? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus stands up for us. Says, hey, they're weak. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take their place. So... To expand upon it, if you, if you just flip backwards to chapter 1, so it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that'll be verse 7, so it's 1 Corinthians 1, 7. Jesus says, take it easy. You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Jesus will keep you firm to the end so that, and this is the important, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Blameless means forgiven. We will not have the sin. We will not have that blame. We will not have that shortcoming. And again, it's the same thing. God is faithful. Right? At the, end of, the beginning of verse 9. God is faithful who has called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, get close to Jesus, you will be blameless. You will, you will be absolved of your sins. Now, we've heard that all before, right? We've heard that a lot of our lives, and we, 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 a lot of times I think we discount it a little bit because we've heard it so many times. I know, Jesus forgives us. All we have to do is ask. We've heard that. But think about what, how hard that is and think about how good we are at doing the same thing. Do we forgive the same people over and over and over again? Or we have a limit or is there a, a limit as to what we can forgive and what we can't remember God through Jesus forgives everything, not only the bad stuff in our lives, but everybody's life. So what's our, what, what's, what's our limit? What's your limit? Or what, how many times can you forgive before you say, hey, you play me for a fool? It's probably different for everybody. But think about that. I'm going to give you some examples. There's the small stuff that we kind of brush off. You know, somebody's on the highway going a little too slow, and we get a little uptight, but we go around them. All right? Or somebody's ignoring us. This is a kid favorite. Aren't you listening to me? I'm talking to you. They don't. They're not, just not grabbing it. They're not listening. They're ignoring you. You get frustrated, right? But you forgive them. You don't dwell on it for the rest of your lives. If somebody bumps you in line, you're at the grocery store and somebody hits you, or you're at the movie theater and they give you a little kick under the chair by accident, you don't go crazy, right? Somebody steps on your toes. How about somebody's blowing the horn? Yeah, I hear you. I, I, I'm moving. So 
those are all kind of small things that we can forgive. And a lot of times we forget them more than we do anything else. We just kind of brush them out of our mind. Now, we'll take it up a little notch. A week ago or so, my wife slapped me right in the face. And I kind of got jolted. She does it all the time. No, I'm just kidding. So I get jolted. She said it was a bug. I said, yeah, OK. <laughs> what do I do? What do I do now? Do I get mad or do I thank her? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, so, okay, but this is, this is the things we run into, okay? Or how about when somebody takes your parking spot? You know, you're sitting there in the parking lot and there's no spots, and somebody, oh, good, here comes a shopper. They're backing out, backing out, backing out, and you're ready to pull, and somebody zips right in there. What do you do? You go nuts, right? You're mad. You're blowing the horn, rolling down the window, yelling. Do you forgive them? You drive away. You're mad probably for the next 20 minutes. All right? So it's getting a little tougher now. It's a little tougher. Some, again, some of the stuff we forget more than anything else. We don't, really, we don't really have that kind of patience. We just forget about it. Okay? But as soon as we rem somebody reminds us, hey, didn't somebody take your pocket spot? You're mad all over again. Right? We, like, we seem to like those vengeful feelings. So... Suppose somebody calls you something insulting. They call you a really bad name. We see this in the newspaper all the time. People lose their jobs because they use a bad name. Right? They're insulting. Or one of your coworkers said something very hurtful. That's a little tougher. That hangs with you for a bit. Especially if it's somebody you care about or you thought they cared about you. How about when somebody steals something? You know, maybe I can figure it. It depends on the value, right? If they steal a toothpick... I'm not going to get too mad. If they steal jewelry, well, maybe I'm not so quick to forgive because the value's higher. So I don't know. What's the threshold there? How about some bad debt? Somebody owes you some money. They don't pay. How crazy do you get? You go nuts? Do, but the, if you think about that, it might not happen. You maybe don't owe anybody any money. But what if you didn't get a payment this week or this month? I don't care if it's a paycheck or Social Security or unemployment or anything. What if that never comes? It just disappears and you get on the phone and they go, yeah, I just don't, I'm not going to send it. How, how quick are you to forgive that one? Again, it's getting a little tougher now. We're getting, see, we're getting, we're starting to get into the dangerous territory. So like a betrayal, right, where somebody does something really purposely harmful to you. They plan it. They plan it out, they calculate, and they know exactly what they're doing. And they do something to hurt you on purpose. They betrayed your trust. That one's going to stick around. The backstabber. That one's going to stick around for a while. You know, I'm sure we can all think of examples of when that has happened in our lives. You know, they violated our trust. We do. It stings. So now it gets really hard. How about if somebody did something to disfigure us? Like the... Boston Marathon bombing. Um, that one's going to be really tough to forgive. Or how about murder? Somebody murders somebody you love on purpose. They, they know what they were doing. That's almost like stealing something priceless, right? You can't, can never get it back. 
How many of us would turn the other cheek? Probably none. What do we do? We want revenge, right? We want them to suffer. We even get, we even psych ourselves up, right? Say, how dare they? Oh, yeah? Watch this. I'll show them. We're going to put on a display. So not only will we not forgive them, we're going to put on a drama of how we're going to cut them down. You're showing them they're messing with the wrong person. So now that you get these examples, you see how it's a little tough to understand how God can forgive us for all these things? And we're chiseling away and chiseling away. And, and if you think about collectively as a human race, every one of these is happening every day, all day long. So now maybe we can understand how tough it is that God does have that forgiveness in his heart. And it doesn't become cliche-ish, you know, like I was saying, we hear all the time, well, Jesus will forgive us and we got to accept him and we know all that. It's down at home when you start thinking about what does it take to do that? Could I do it? Any one of us. Could anyone, any one of us do it? All day, every day, all these things. So you see, we all have some kind of threshold where we will forgive and where we won't forgive, or maybe we forgive, it just takes a little longer, or maybe it's unforgivable. So think about what's yours. What's too big a transgression? What's too many times? What's the tipping point? So... It's very rare that we would forgive for something extremely major. But we do soften a little bit over time and whatnot. You know, time heals all wounds. I've heard that. But how about while evil's happening? That's what we ask God to do. Forgive us immediately. Any time we ask. And remember, for God, all sin is equal. Right? It's all equally bad. It's all equally damaging. We all fall short. It doesn't say, well, this is a major sin or a minor sin. It's all sin. So, if you think of all sin as, again, as, as equally bad, and God can't come in contact with that sin, we need the Savior, right? We need a filter. We need to be blemish-free. And, and an example I'd used before is if God were a cylinder of pure, distilled water, unblemished, pure, 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 every sin is a drop of something in that water with black ink or iodine or whatever. Once that drop goes in, it's, it's over. So we need a filter so that that blackness doesn't enter God's purity. Jesus is that filter. You have to turn to this, but in Hebrews... You think of it this way, to bring Jesus really close here, it's, this is talking about Jesus. It says, for surely it's not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that's us. For this reason, he has been made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. 
and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, for us. Because he himself suffered and was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Exactly what I've been talking about. That's right out of Hebrews. So that only leaves one unforgivable sin. And that's the opportunity to accept Jesus. If you don't do that, again, because of my example with the purity and sin and what that all means, the only thing that God can't take upon himself and away from us is to to come in contact with sin. So we need to accept Jesus. And we have every opportunity to do it. If you want to um, look in Isaiah 65, I'm not sure where that is. You have to, you're on your own. (laughs) But Isaiah 65. Verse 1, right at the beginning. So here Isaiah is talking about the opportunities to accept Jesus, okay, and accept the Lord. So if you look at 65.1, it says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Okay, in other words, he's there. I was found by those who did not seek me. There. To a nation that did not call my name. And I said, this is again the Lord saying, here I am, here I am. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people, us, who walk in ways not good, sin, pursuing their own imaginations, our own temptations. So what's the price of that? It's the saying you see in a lot of schools now, right? Action has consequences. That's to make us think before we do things. Action has consequences. So now if we flip a little bit backwards to Isaiah 13, what does the Lord say back in chapter 13? Or is it, oh no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's, it's chapter 65 still, verse 13. Sorry, I messed you up. So Isaiah, Isaiah 65, we're going to flip forward a little bit to, cha- to verse 13. So it says, therefore, this is what the Lord, sovereign Lord says. It says, my servants will eat, but you will go hungry. In other words, the people who don't accept the Lord. My servants, that's the people who accept. My servants will drink, and you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice and you will be put to shame. So you see the difference between acceptance and not. Verse 14, my servants will sing out of the joy in their hearts and those who don't accept will cry out from the anguish and broken spirit that's in their heart. So again, the Lord's giving us examples. And then God says he's going to give us a way out. And this is where I messed up. So if you flip a little bit backwards to Isaiah chapter 44, it kind of finishes it up for us. Verse 3, 44.3, The Lord's letting us know, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. In other words, he will, the Lord will feed us. And I will pour out my spirit on your offspring 
and my blessing on your descendants. Blessing is salvation. Okay? So Isaiah is telling us, except the Lord will pour out his spirit. <clears throat> so I started thinking, why do we have such a hard time forgiving? And God is so able to forgive. And kind of after a lot of thought, kind of popped in my head was, I have to think it's because we get caught off guard. Okay? When bad things happen, we're, we're shocked. The betrayals, the backstabbing, even people taking our parking spot. It just happens. We don't expect it. We're caught off guard. We don't think they're going to have to forgive anybody. We expect that everybody will be <clears throat> faithful into our feelings and, and, and listen to what we want people to be like around us. We believe that there'll be kindness around us. We believe there'll be good feelings. And, I, and I'm not just talking about strangers, you know, on a dark alley. I'm talking about amongst your friends and family and coworkers and wherever you, you come together as a group, we expect good feelings. We expect good things. And then we're shocked when something happens. It just blows us away. And we have no patience. Everything sets us off, right? Even if there's too much noise. People yell, quiet down. They can't stand the neighbors playing their stereo too loud. We can't even stand noise. How can we stand something really bad? But God knows better. God knows that we are built to fail. We're built to sin. We're, we, are, we are going to come up short. No surprise. God knows it's going to happen. And I actually borrowed this from somebody in the church that had... Uh, put this out and it made sense to me in the context of what I just said. The beginning of love is to let those who love be perfectly themselves. In other words, God lets us be ourselves. That's the sign of love. And not be twisted to fit their own image. So God doesn't, you know, bend us to be God-like. God lets us be us. So why does God let us do it? And I think this gives us that answer. I mean, people, sometimes people say, well, if sin's so bad, why does God let it happen? Why is there sin in the world if God doesn't like it? And I think your answer is exactly this, is being ourselves is a sign of, of God's love. And the second half of this quote is, if another person or God molded us into exactly themselves, they wouldn't love us. They would love the reflection of themselves that they see. They would, it, we would be a mirror. So that's your answer when people say, well, why does God let sin be in the world? Because God's letting us be us. That's why. God's not trying to love himself by making us all a mirror. So that, that kind of drove things home for me. And because God knew we'd be our natural selves, God knew we can't help it. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to sin. He also knew we needed a savior. Again, no surprise for God. He already knew, already knew all this was going to happen. And I think because there's no surprise, God's prepared. And that's why we're never prepared to forgive. We never get ourselves ready. We never say we're going to, we know it's going to happen. God's always ready to forgive. 
And I got a little quote here from um, Teen Challenge. That's that group, for anybody that doesn't know, it's a, it's a, a bunch of, of um, homes, I'll call them, that people can go to that are addicted to things, whatever that is, some addiction. They come up here and they do the choir. And this is a quote from one of their folks. And she says, I remember feeling the love of God as a child but I never thought I'd be able to sense his presence in my life again after all I had done. But because of the forgiveness of God through Jesus, my relationship with the Lord is restored today, which is truly a miracle. And to really bring it full circle, the same person, again, addicted, down and out, abandoned, nowhere to turn, says, the mistakes I've made no longer define who I am. They no longer consume me. So to me, that's pretty powerful stuff. That's, um, that, that's a living example of exactly what I'm saying here, the forgiveness and how that works. Okay. I'm good at borrowing stuff, so I borrowed a little tidbit from my cousin Luke, who, that's a good name for him because he's a little bit apostolistic. Uh, um, and, and he's right on the money. He knows, he knows what he's doing. So you don't have to turn here, but in First Peter chapter 2, it talks about living sacrifices. And that's, again, this is where we come in. Okay? First Peter chapter 2 says, You also, like living stones, are built into a spiritual house, that's ourselves, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. So let me expand on that. So in Romans 12, Paul pleads to the believers and says, you know, our, ourselves, our, whether our bodies, our minds, everything about us, the essence of us is a living and holy sacrifice that is an act of worship. What we do, how we act, what we think, how we, how we behave is an act of worship. The problem with living sacrifices and those things, this is a quote, says... The problem with living sacrifices is they tend to crawl off the altar, okay? In other words, we're dirty. Whether it's how we do things or how we think about things, you, you, you know you're going to catch yourself doing it all the time. We have the black ink. So sacrificial living demands spiritual discipline, Constant dependence on the Holy Spirit. We can't do it ourselves. We need, we need dependence on the Holy Spirit. The problem is we're not always willing to do that. It's hard. It takes a lot of effort. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, the forgiveness, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's not my words. That's right in Romans. 
to offer your bodies, and I include mind, mind and body, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is a, your true and proper worship. Again, not my words, that's, that's right in Romans. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. If we keep going, for the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't be conceited, but rather think of yourself with somber judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function, means we all have our same pluses and minuses. We all have our same positives and negatives. In, in verse 5, So in Christ we, through many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others, and we support each other. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesizing, then prophecy in accordance to your faith. If it is serving, then serve. It's teaching, then teach. Again, we don't all do the same thing. That's what makes us better is if we can rely on the strength of each, each of us. Verse 8 is to encourage and then give encouragement. It is giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. But always show it is, I'm sorry, but if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully and restore your brother gently. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never lacking in zeal. Be robust. Be, be on fire about it. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And 14, bless those who persecute you. That's a hard one, right? Bless and do not curse. That's even harder. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn, mourn with those who mourn, who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people in low position. Do not be conceited. That's what Jesus did, embrace the lowest of the low, the outcasts. And here's where it gets even tougher. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Okay, that's the vengeance thing. I'm going to show them. They don't know who they're fooling with. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. It says if it's possible. God knows it's not quite, not quite going to happen. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. We got to remember, God has perfect knowledge. Again, we don't know why things happen. We just know they happen. And we always say, why does this bad stuff happen to me? Why does it happen to somebody I care about? We don't know. 
all these things. God's making all things happen for good all at once over a whole bunch of people. So we don't know how it affects someone else or how all these things that are happening, but God has perfect knowledge. So let God be that judge because God has all the, all the information necessary. We've only got a little slice of it. Now, not to feel so bad, God says, this is an instruction in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And I don't, I don't believe God meant for that to necessarily be a punishment, but rather a repentance. Okay, the, the burning coals heaped on their head is the, the sorrow and repentance that they will feel as you feed them and give them drink. And this is the important one. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I got an article that was really pretty mind-blowing here. Um, it's a couple of blurbs. And you may or may not have seen this on the news. There's a 13-year-old girl on a school bus who one of the students had brought a gun they took from their house. They were fooling around with it, firing at the floor, doing all these things. And the gun went off and, and killed the 13-year-old girl. Just, this is such a powerful example of what I'm talking about. I don't know if, um, there's, I, I have to think very few of us could do this. But here, here's a couple of little blurbs. It says, a grieving mother whose 13-year-old daughter was accidentally shot to death on a school bus hugged the girl's killer in court in an astonishing show of forgiveness. That's, that's pretty heavy duty. Struggling through her tears, the mom walked towards a 16-year-old boy in a Miami courtroom and put her arms around him and held him tightly. And she says, I miss her and I really do forgive him. And not to, again, not to diminish that. I mean, this isn't like she's all casual. She's, she had a statement prepared, couldn't read it, trembling, tears are flowing down. And she says, I forgive him. The judge says, in 20 years, I've watched human tragedy unfold in this courtroom. She said, I could never have imagined a victim's mother embrace, <clears throat> embracing the child's killer. That's, I said, that's pretty powerful stuff. The mom says, my daughter would not have wanted, would have want, I'm sorry, my daughter would have wanted to be kind towards the boy. In other words, the, door wouldn't, the daughter wouldn't have wanted to slam the door, put him in prison for many years, you know, beat them down, do everything they can to make their life miserable. She said her daughter would have wanted her, the mom, to be kind towards the boy. So what happens now, again, this is the heaping coals pot I just talk, talked about. So this youth will go to a camp and make monthly visits to the police station and 
to speak at schools and other groups about the dangers of guns. And he's going to do it with the victim's mom. So that's pretty, again, that's very, very heavy-duty stuff. And the mom says, together, her and, the, and, the, and the, this, this teenager can make a change to help other children. Now, what makes this so powerful is not only does the mother forgiving, this is hardcore, not only is the mother forgiving this atrocity, but think about it, she could have just been another victim. Her daughter could have just been another victim. We put him in the books, case closed, boy goes to prison, does some kind of you know, thing, probably gets out when he's 21, just routine. Instead, the mom did a 180 and turned this into something much more positive. So I go back to what I was saying about Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I, I think that's an incredible um, example of exactly that statement. Okay, if, if we look at verse 2, it says, Do not be confront, conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind. The transformed mind leads to transformed behavior. Starts, it starts with a thought. And again, those actions have consequences. Think before you act. So in closing, and you don't have to turn, I'll read it to you. In Romans 6.13, verse 13 says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself as an instrument of that righteousness. And you remember, before being saved, people don't, aren't strong enough. They don't have the desire, they don't have the ability, they're not capable of making that kind of sacrifice or for themselves and their actions. That transformation makes us a creature of God. That with God's help, we can make those sacrifices. We can be the living sacrifice that's so hard. So what we want to do is thank God for his bountiful, unlimited mercies. Commit every day to him. Ask for grace, grace so that we can live a, a more holy life. We can never live the perfect holy life. We can live a more holy life. And ask for forgiveness. And do the same for those that ask it of us. That's a tall order, but we can try. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your endless mercy, for forgiving us. We don't know how many times. We don't know how many times we'll need your forgiveness. We just know that you'll give it. All we need to do is ask. So we, we love and pray that You'll continue to smile on us. You'll continue to bless us. And we are ever thankful that you provide Jesus as our Lord and Savior to take away all those things that we are capable of ourselves. Amen.